Addiction is a chronic disease. Millions of people worldwide suffer from substance and behavioral addictions. An addict's life is often unmanageable, leaving the addict and his or her family and friends feeling completely powerless over the disease. Without treatment, addiction can result in disability or premature death. You are listening to Making an Addict. My name is DJ Burr, and I'm an addict in long-term recovery. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, behavioral addiction specialist, and best-selling author of I Just Wanted Love, Recovery of a Codependent Sex and Love Addict, now available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. I intend to bring you different perspectives about addiction from various sources, including other addicts in recovery, clinicians who treat recovering addicts, and family and friends of addicts to discover what makes an addict. Listener discretion is advised. To learn more about this podcast, check us out at makinganaddict.com or follow me on social media at djburr1022 on Facebook, the DJ Burr on Instagram, and at djburr1022 on Twitter. Well, welcome to today's show. I'm DJ, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Kay Brumbaugh. You got it. Brumbaugh. Yeah. Well, <laughs> welcome to the show. Can you introduce yourself and tell our audience who you are? Absolutely. My name's Kay Brumbaugh. I'm a licensed psychologist here in beautiful Humble, Texas. We're in the suburbs of Houston. I've been in private practice now for approximately three years, but in practice for over 10 years. Wow. And uh, can you tell us uh, the folks that you treat? Are you working with adults, children, the age range? I'm working with adults only, primarily over 21 years of age. And the focus of my practice is in addiction a variety of addictions, but I also work with other individuals coming in with a variety of concerns, including anxiety, stress, life transitions, uh, grief, as well as uh, anxiety and stress. So you work with uh, adults struggling with addiction. How is that for you? It's a, well, to start off, it's a passion for me. Um, I found this uh, area of psychology early in my training, and I feel fortunate to have found it. And it just clicked for me. It's uh, been an amazing experience, and I feel fortunate to work with these individuals, um, often coming in an extremely vulnerable time in their lives. Um, Presents many challenges, which as a clinician, um, that's fun to be able to work with uh, challenging clients. It's also extremely rewarding when you can see individuals really turn their life in a, in a different direction, not always around, right? <laughs> but, in, <laughs> but in a different direction on a path that they're maybe really struggling on. Um, extremely rewarding to be able to join someone on that journey. I feel privileged that people allow me to come on that journey with them. Yeah, it is a journey, and I've been working with folks dealing with uh, addiction and also folks in recovery as well for for many years now, and um, I'm glad that you can have fun doing this work too, and it Mm -hmm. is a joy seeing folks turn their lives around and and work through uh, the trauma and the addiction and the pain and all the other things that come about as we, mm-hmm. as they work on this, uh, journey. Right. Right. Okay. And I think that's what makes it a, a journey. I think sometimes we have those individuals coming in and 
okay, so when am I going to be sober and how long is this going to take? Oh, yeah, right. And <laughs> <laughs> they want the uh, very black and white easy solution, but the reality is it's a journey and it's a process and that's the beautiful part of it mm-hmm. is we can get whichever addictions going on out of the way, but then it's all those other pieces of the puzzle we start putting together. All right, so what are the primary addictions that you focus on? Primarily, I focus on substance abuse, um, but we I certainly see a lot of other um, other concerns coming through, um, including um, from pornography, gambling, video games. Um, we're even seeing a lot of internet addiction now mm-hmm. from uh, social media, just being addicted to their telephones. Um, so I'd say the majority of my practice really is substance abuse, alcohol, and illicit substances. Um, but we're seeing a lot of other areas of concern for individuals. Yeah. You know, I work in, uh, in psychotherapy as well, and I'm seeing folks primarily with behavioral addictions. And mm-hmm. as someone in long-term recovery, I know the challenges that go along with substance and behavioral addictions. And the Mm -hmm. reason I started this podcast is because I wanted to know what were people's perspectives about addiction and what makes someone an an addict. Um, I have my own thoughts and feelings about that, but I'm curious to know what yours are. Mm -hmm. So what do you think contributes to someone becoming an addict? I think definitely there's going to be several pieces to this. Um, When I'm working with someone, first we might start looking at family history. Is someone predisposed to um, an addiction gene? Are they going, if they experienced within their family um, any type of addiction? I think a lot of times what comes to mind first is alcohol or drugs. That's, I think people automatically connect that to addiction. But sometimes as we dig deeper, we start seeing that maybe there was a parental history of like gambling addiction. Mm-hmm. So we're first of all going to look at if there's this family history. But then there is also a lot of social experiences, traumas that individuals might go through. Um, environmental factors um, that start contributing to um, one's potential for addiction. Okay, so you're starting off looking at the the family history, and I think most clinicians do that. So your Mm -hmm. client comes in and they're addicted to some substance or some behavior, and you start looking at family history. How do you help them understand um, about the genetic piece and uh, maybe some of the environmental pieces that maybe are impacted their their lives as children. Part of our work is definitely education. Um, I work with a lot of individuals who are in recovery for the first time. That's a portion of my work that I really enjoy. So a part of my job is also to provide some psychoeducation Um, how do we put a piece of, how do we put a puzzle together if we don't know what the picture is? We're we're blindly putting, trying to fit pieces together and not really understand what the out, what the outcome is going to be. So I look at part of my job, um, with the psychoeducational piece is we're trying to figure out what are all the puzzle pieces and then what's that picture that we're working towards. 
And so as we're helping an individual understand what their family history is, what their experiences have been that have led them to this point in their life today, we're then helping them put all those puzzle pieces together so it makes sense. So it's not a random experience they've come to in their life. The educational piece is really important too in their relapse prevention. No understanding what um, some of the stresses they've experienced in their life, maybe um, missed opportunities for skill building. So that's Mm. gonna be some of our future work is we need to work on interpersonal skills or distress tolerance skills. Right. Yeah. It's important to kind of know what you're working on. You know, that that picture, Mm -hmm. I really like that that analogy about the the puzzle. Um, Mm -hmm. That makes sense to me. And I think that would help people who are distressed coming in, working on addiction to kind of hear it that way. You know, Mm -hmm. this is where we're going to begin. Right. Right. I I find it's always trying to find a balance between we're working on skills for today and for the future, but also understanding the roots, the past, how has this really developed for us? Mm -hmm. Um, It's understanding how the, how it's progressed to the point today that life has become unmanageable. Yeah. Can you, can you talk about uh, trauma and how trauma impacts uh, those that you treat? And their mm-hmm. addict and their addiction. Sure, we know that approximately eighty percent or so of individuals that are struggling with addiction may have been through some type of trauma. Now, trauma doesn't necessarily mean what we may think of as abuse. It could have been witnessing uh, violence uh, for maybe refugees who have been through trauma within their country of origin and come to the states now and struggling it may be verbal physical or sexual trauma it may be even neglect so we know that a large proportion of individuals who are struggling with addiction have been sent through some sort of trauma a lot of this trauma has occurred in childhood or early adolescence and this is such a critical time of our lives This is a very formative time of our lives where our brains are developing. And through research, we understand that when trauma occurs on the brain, it starts to rewire the way our brain is developed. Mm. So with that, we might look at it as an arrested development. There's been opportunities where um, someone who has not been through trauma, uh, there's the they've matured and progressed they've gone through um, typical developmental leaps with the arrested development there's been changed pathways within the brain and um, certain developmental times of our lives where we we develop skills those have been missed so in the long we kind of fast forward to where the addictions come into place maybe some um, distress uh distress tolerance skills or maybe the impulse control they have not had an opportunity to really mature and develop so that's when addiction or substances or um gambling or um internet addiction start to come in that impulse control isn't there and it becomes easier to um start finding relief from the different addictions or even start to um, 
to feel good from them. We get that dopamine release. It feels good. <laughs> That's why people keep coming back to that addiction. Absolutely. And so we look at kind of uh, what traumas have occurred early in our life and how those have possibly um, impacted the development of the brain, thus in turn uh, making the brain more vulnerable um, for addiction. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, yeah, I'm glad that you said that because I was thinking vulnerability, right? That's the one mm -hmm. thing that I try to spend a lot of time on with my clients is helping them understand their vulnerability, mm -hmm. right? And I think when someone is dealing with trauma, they become really vulnerable and susceptible, right? Oh, yes. And what they're trying to do is to, to heal, to numb in a way, right? To distance themselves from the, the pain, the hurt. Uh, whether that's a war or, uh, you know, they're being abused at home or they've been bullied at school, um, we can only handle so much. Right. How have your perspectives changed over the years uh, since maybe from the very moment you decided to go into psychology and work with uh, addiction to now? How has my perception changed your perspective of, uh, on addiction. addiction? Yeah. That's a great question. <laughs> um, I definitely, I would think it, it was kind of, um, I'm kind of aligning myself with those individuals who are coming into addiction for that first time, that it's going to be clear cut, black and white, or, or, primary focus is on um, abstinence from our addiction, whatever that may be. And I, I think over time, I've really I've learned to appreciate, but start to really understand the complexity of addiction. That when someone is coming in for, um, they're struggling with gambling with scratch cards. Mm-hmm. And that might be their presenting concern, and that's what they're coming to me for help. But over time, I've come to really understand the complexity of there's so much more behind that curtain of the scratch cards. Um, the complexity, the, um, the challenges that lie underneath, um, that's the real work. That's what's going to, our focus is going to be. Um, and I definitely think for me, that took some time to understand that. Um, I, maybe I wanted it to be more simple at first. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, right? Because they're coming to us for a, a quick, a lot of people come to us for like a quick fix. They think, mm -hmm. oh, I have this issue. All I need to do is stop and you can yeah. help me stop. It's not mm -hmm. that simple. Tell me what I do need to do to make it stop because right. my partner's not happy about it. <laughs> yes, yes. The partner's... Are, are always the ones who are referring. Um, yep. But it's not that easy, especially if you're working with someone, let's say, who has a food addiction or a sex oh, addiction, yes. right? These are things that we need to in our lives, right? We are mm -hmm. hardwired to eat, to have sex, right? But Absolutely. we're not hardwired to drink alcohol, no. Nope. Right. So trying to get people to to understand that, especially if they come in with multiple addictions. And most of my clients have multiple addictions. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, so where do you start? Someone comes in, they have multiple addictions. Let's say they have a substance and a couple behavioral addictions. Where do you start with them beyond the family of origin, uh, the family work piece? So, I mean, of course, my initial session is going to be us establishing an assessment of really what's going on. Um, a huge piece of our work is also our relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we connect that to what we were just saying about individuals often coming in with histories of trauma underneath their addiction, there's often a lot of mistrust of individuals. Right. So a huge portion of my work at the beginning is uh, focusing on establishing a rapport um, and so allowing someone to start taking down some of these walls uh, to trust me. Um, someone coming into treatment for the first time, we're going to focus a lot on skill building. Um, it's not fair for me to take away your addictions and say, now go into the world <laughs> and, and I'll see you next week. That's terrifying for someone Yeah. Um, for me to take away all of their coping skills. Right and to walk around raw and um and terrified for a week so we um we start building up some skills so we can work towards the abstinence um it's hard sometimes as much as you want to say you need to stop immediately today Mm -hmm. that's not always possible and a lot of times individuals aren't at that stage of change they're not ready to put down all their armor. Um, So it's a complicated process of us trying to uh, work on some skill building with individuals, focusing on establishing rapport so there's trust. So when we're ready to kind of put down all the walls, they know that I'm, I'm there behind them, that they've got it. They've got a support system. Um, We're also focusing on a multidisciplinary, multidisciplinary approach. Um, if someone's come in and they've formed these multiple addictions that started to become their support network that's their source of comfort and maybe uh family friends co-workers have faded to the distance mm-hmm. so in the from a multidisciplinary perspective um there's going to be myself as their therapist but we're also looking at is medication management necessary what social support is there what um, is SA or NA um, going to be an additional support for them? Right. Um, so we really want to start building this individual up so they feel nurtured, support, love. They start having skills. So when, we're, when they're ready to start taking down some of the walls, they're prepared for that. Unless I think we're in sometimes a controlled environment where we can take away all the walls. Because there's a lot of, there's a big safety net around them. Right. That's for, scary. For, right. And especially in outpatient therapy where I might see someone once or twice a week for a one hour session. Mm-hmm. That's not much time. Yeah. So in between the, the one hour a week sessions that you have with your clients, what kind of things are you encouraging them to do outside of your office uh, mm-hmm. to build up that self-care? Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's starting at the very, very basics in terms of making sure that they're rebooting their diet. 
our diet has a huge impact on our mood. Um, we want to make sure there may be as simple as eating three meals a day, breakfast, yeah. lunch, dinner, and snacks, uh, drinking water again, particularly when we're looking at um, maybe there's been a certain type of substance abuse uh, where the drug of choice uh, reduces appetite and they've gone on days of not eating. Mm-hmm. So we want to make sure that people are starting to eat right, that they're going to their uh, primary care provider and getting a full physical exam. Let's see where you're at medically and physically, as well as taking as your mental health. We're making sure that um, individuals are starting to exercise. And that doesn't mean hitting the gym, pumping iron every day. <laughs> if, some, if someone can take their dog for a walk for 10 minutes around the block, perfect. Right. Babe, this is about baby steps. We're starting a lot of times from the very beginning again. Mm-hmm. It might be starting to just explore what support network, network networks are outside what are the, what local meetings are around there going to test them out you don't have to go to the to a meeting and that's your home group go check out some different meetings see which one you feel comfortable at so each week i'm going to be assigning an individual small tasks to do all right this week you're going to go check out this group and tell me what you tell me what you heard mm-hmm. they and we just want to start introducing that person to the world again. Hmm. They've probably isolated themselves so much. And we put, like we said, we've put up the walls. We want to start showing them what the world is out there and what they might be interested in. I like that. You know, that's kind of how I, how I work. You know, we have to build up your self-care skills. And I can't tell you how many people sit in front of me and say, what is self-care? Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's where it starts. That's that psychoeducation that yep. that we were talking about earlier. It's like, I have to explain to you what self-care is. That means you probably have not been doing it. Right. Right. So it, it can be just as simple as making sure you're drinking water, you're having food, you're seeing people, you're not isolating, right? And you're walking your dog. Mm-hmm. That may and be sleep. what you're doing. And sleep is so important. Huge. Oh, my God. It's so important. I mean, you know, coming in, some folks coming in with like three or four hours of sleep, and then they have a job, and maybe they have kids, and they're actively addicted to a substance or a behavior. I mean, talk about chaos. Right. Yeah. And so. that, an addiction, it takes up a lot of time. Doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it can be an... It can be another full-time job. It can be the full-time job. And that starts to get into way, the, in, in the way of everyday life, in mm-hmm. the way of sleep. That person might be going home, coming home from an eight, nine-hour day, playing partner, playing mother or father. The family goes to bed, and then they're up all night um, engaged in their internet addiction, their behavioral mm-hmm. addiction, and they're getting three or four hours of sleep that wreaks havoc on our stress system, on our mental health. So it's starting at those baby steps again. Right, right. So do you see family members of addicts? A lot of times it's critical to have these individuals involved. Um, I think if I found a lot of times uh, 
there's resistance to this, there's hesitancy to this. Um, it's scary. It's scary to bring the people you love most into a room and to get real. Yeah, for to talk sure. A, to get honest with them. Um, there's probably been a long history of lies, deception, um, creating masks so they don't really see what's going on underneath. Particularly if we go back to the trauma piece, family members might not know about a, a history of trauma there. Mm-hmm. Not, not that that all has to be shared, but as we, um, I think a lot of times family members want to understand why, why do you do this? Um, so it's, it's scary, I think, to bring those family families in, but it's critical. Um, this is a team approach. Um, I usually tell my clients, like, it's going to be hard for you to do this by yourself. It's yeah. going to be hard for you to do it with just me. Let's get a whole team behind you and whoever that might be, the family members. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think they're, they're definitely an important piece in collaborating with all of us to make it uh, a, a success for that individual, for them to get back on track and for them to discover what that puzzle picture is going to be. Mm-hmm. So a family member, uh, someone who is, uh, who's living with uh, an addict um, calls you up and they're wanting to come in to see you and they come in for a first session. Um, you may find that this person, in fact, has their own addiction, right? But they're really focused on how do I show up for my family member who's suffering? What can you tell families that are out there listening today? What what are some helpful things that they might do if they have a, a family member or a loved one who is suffering? Mm-hmm. I think some of the, maybe some of the first pieces for that individual is to start looking at what resources are out there um, to understand what you have in your community. Um, get online, talk to people on Facebook or different chat rooms. Um, talk to your neighbors and your friends. It's amazing how many, how often family members start talking to friends about addiction and they start saying, oh yes, my son also went to rehab. Hmm, so true. it might be uh, finding what resources are available in your community and maybe what's helped other people. It's getting in connection with professionals so they can seek guidance and support in being able to help their loved one seek treatment also. It's uh, be prepared possibly for a challenge. Huh. Even though we may see a concern, we may, we may see how disruptive this addiction is in someone's life. Either they don't see it, they're not ready to see it, they don't want to see it. So I think sometimes for those individuals, getting support also for themselves is um, helpful for uh, for some of the challenges that may be ahead of them. Um, but definitely also start expressing your concern to the individual. Hey, honey, I've noticed that you haven't really been on time to work the past three days. Is everything okay? Start introducing some of your concerns to that individual. Um, I think it's also, there's a lot of support in our community also through, um, Al-Anon 
It might be another opportunity for individuals to start getting help so they can figure out how to address some of the concerns that have gone on that have filtered into their life. Uh, what we know with addiction is it doesn't doesn't just affect that one individual who's suffering. Right. It starts impacting and overflowing into the family. So it's opportunities for them to start looking at how has this really impacted myself and maybe even how have I contributed to that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think all of that is really helpful information because uh, families suffer uh, when addiction is present. It's not just an individual problem. It's a family problem. And that can include close friends as well. Um, oh, yeah. And addiction, it, it, you know, it's a it's a disease. That is my that's my belief. Now I know there are some people out there that says, okay, this issue is a, a an addiction and this issue is not. Um, have you come up with that where where you've had clients come in and say, well, I worked with this other provider and they said my sex addiction isn't a disease, or they said gambling is not a disease, or they said addiction is not a disease. Um, what do you do? I certainly take the disease model approach mm-hmm. and it's, I think, try, trying to help someone understand that if we, if we don't address this concern, essentially it's their choice if they address it or not. Sure. My recommendation is if we do not address it, it will continue to progress. It'll get worse and worse until it's even more unmanageable than it is right now. And sometimes that's helping someone go back and look at some of the patterns. Well, where do we start at? Where did your pornography addiction start? Mm -hmm. And where is it at today? Okay, it's got worse over time. Have you have you tried to stop it? Have you tried to make changes? Well, yeah, I've, I've tried to change it myself before without professional help. I've tried to slow it down a bit, but it just seems like it keeps getting worse over time. Um, So a lot of times, just through even talking about it, individuals will start to realize that it's just progressed over time. It keeps getting worse without, without without being able to achieve abstinence from it themselves. Yeah. Wow. So how many folks do you see a week? On average, about 25. 25 people 20, a week. 20 to 25. That sounds about right for me too. And of, of those 25 people, how many are coming in to see you for addiction-related issues? Probably about 60%, 60 to 70%. Goodness, right. And often that's not their presenting concern. Right, right. <laughs> so we have, to, we have to figure that out. We have to go through all the other stuff first, right? Uh, so 60% of your, your weekly clients are, are dealing with addiction. So as a practitioner myself, I know that I have to take care of myself because that is heavy. That is a heavy load, mm-hmm. right? When people come in and dump all of their stuff, not only are you dealing with just like the, maybe some anxiety and depression and all of those things, but you're also dealing with trauma and addiction um, how do you take care of yourself as a provider? Mm-hmm. Um, I really work on setting healthy boundaries for myself. Good. <laughs> Try. Yes. Which is, I mean, part of this is role modeling, you know, 
healthy living for our clients. Um, I work on setting boundaries for myself, trying not to take work home. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One of my goals for 2017 is to read more books for pleasure. Um, Balancing that with books on psychology that I just enjoy reading. Um, I enjoy doing pottery Mm -hmm. and working on ceramics on the wheel. Uh, So that that's a great escape for me. And then I love spending time with my family and we have two dogs at home. So hanging out with them, trying to sleep, eat, (laughs) drink enough water. (laughs) All those things that you recommend clients do. Yes. And it's hard. Yeah. It's, it's hard. And I, I have to remind myself, I have my Fitbit to remember to exercise. Right. <laughs> I sometimes have to track to make sure I'm drinking enough water to make sure I'm getting enough sleep. Mm-hmm. What, we, we live in a complicated world nowadays. We do. And I think that's why we're seeing addiction on the rise more. We live in a complicated world. We have so much access to whatever we want. And... I think it's so overwhelming at times that there's a need to escape. We want to escape, um, but we need to make the choices for the right escapes. <laughs> the right escapes. I okay. love that. Mm-hmm. I love that. Wow, that's definitely something to put on a t-shirt and uh, <laughs> and market right. The right escapes okay. because addiction what? is an escape. Mm-hmm. It's just not the right one. No. Um, I enjoy doing a lot of mindfulness in my work and um, I, I find even though we can't walk around maybe being mindful all day, mm-hmm. um, even those brief 10 minutes of being in the moment, being in the here and now can be those little escapes that we need throughout the day to yeah. take care of ourselves. And that's an important message. We have to take care of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right. I want to thank you for providing a service to to people who are struggling in their addiction or even thriving in their recovery. Um, The work that you and I do is so important because there's so many people suffering in the world. And I wanted to just thank you once again for being uh, willing to come on to today's show and, and talk to us about your perspectives on what makes someone an addict. If, do you have any parting words, any words of encouragement that you could offer our listeners? I think for anyone that is struggling or they're maybe uncertain if they have an addiction, uh, know there's people out there that want to help, that are available, um, that there's your community is there to support you and encourage you. It's scary. I think it's very, very scary to make that first phone call to pick up the phone and ask for help. Um, but life can be really different. That that the uh, life's a journey, right? <laughs> it is a journey. And I think um, as scary it is, there's individuals that want to join you in that journey and. Just maybe show you how to live life a little bit differently and then you can decide if it feels right for you. But sometimes we got to open that door and just have a look and see. Open the door and have a look. Well, if, mm-hmm. if listeners are looking for a provider in your area, how can they find out um, 
where you practice. Do you have a website that you can share? Sure. My website is uh, www.drkbrumbaugh.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for being a guest on our show today. And I look forward to speaking with you in the future. Thanks so much, DJ. Thank you for listening to this episode of Making an Addict. For all my listeners, I have a special gift for you. I created a seven steps guide to power up your recovery and you can access it today. Go to bit.ly slash seven steps guide. That's bit.ly slash the number seven steps with an S guide. Go ahead and go there now and get your free guide. Sign up for the newsletter and it will be sent to you in your email. Take care. Thank you for joining the discussion today on Making an Addict. In closing, I want you to understand that there are various opinions about addiction and what makes someone an addict. The opinions expressed here on today's show are those of the person who made them. I suggest you take what you heard, process it, and decide for yourselves what you believe in. If you have feedback or want to tell your story on the show, let me know by emailing makinganaddict at gmail.com or you can reach me on social media. Again, I'm on Facebook and Twitter at djburr1022 and the DJ Burr on Instagram. Lastly, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be of service. Recovery saved my life and I will be forever grateful. I will keep giving back every opportunity I am given. Tune in next time to witness our ongoing discussion on Making an Addict. Making an Addict is produced by the Recovery Legacy Network, bringing you recovery on all fronts. Learn more at recoverylegacynetwork.com. Today's music featured tracks by CDK and Jay Lang.